1: Now, before we get into this week's episode, I do actually have some genuinely exciting news. Well, it is exciting for us, and hopefully you'll feel the same. The Spooning team, including myself, are going on the road this summer. We're partnering with Pub in the Park, the UK's premium food festival, where we will be doing this show live. Yes, it's your chance, our listeners, to come and see us make complete fools of ourselves in front of a live audience. We will be, of course, interviewing your favorite chefs and some of the fantastic musical acts that are performing at this year's events. It kicks off on the 16th of May in Marlow and then goes on to Chiswick, Reigate and St. Albans. You can get your tickets at tickets.pubintheparkuk.com. Your ticket will gain you entry and you will see a huge array of music artists, including McFly, Paloma Faith, Gabrielle, Busted and many many more. Come have some fun with us. Hello and welcome to Spooning with me Mark Wogan. Now each week I am joined by a very special guest who will be served two spoons... One of something they say they love and one of something they think they hate. And the dishes will be prepared by the fantastic Jamie Shears, who's the executive chef here at the Mount Street restaurant in Mayfair. Lucky us. Now, the difference is that our guest will be blindfolded. And today's guest, well, what can I say? He is none other than the tall and incredibly handsome Dan Snow. History made. Welcome to Spooning, Dan. It's lovely to have you here. It's
2: great to be spooned.
1: Well, I mean, we'll do that later. But in the, first and foremost, I will feed you some food. But I want to start by saying I noticed that we have a lot of similarities as, as men. You know, you as a young Good-looking, intelligent. Exactly. Tall. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, you took the tall bit a bit further than me. Um, but because uh, you're what are you six, six six
2: five or six depending on the day yeah. uh, and the shoes on the, sh- exactly yes,
1: whether, on the shoes. whether it's the weekend and you're in your special shoes? Uh,
2: to, to be honest, <laughs> I, think I, yeah, I think I am actually 199 centimeters, which has been a cause of sadness my entire life. Yeah, never, never hit the big 200.
1: Well, I mean, poor me, I'm at 184. Okay, well, that's yeah. still very so good. Out. There good we on. go. Better on planes, but our other similarities we as as youths we excelled on water so. I, myself, was Berkshire swimming champion under thirteen. Get out of here. Yeah. You wow. took it a little further, didn't you? Not much further than that. Well, come on. I mean, you, how, many, how many times did you win the boat well, race?
2: Well, I don't, I don't know how many times I won. I won once, but I was in it three times. But I, that, rowing is a sport for people who are rubbish at sports. So, um...
1: Do you know what? A very good friend of mine, who's a chap called Fred, who has an Olympic gold for rowing, and he said, he goes, I was rubbish at every single sport, they put you in a boat because yeah. he's tall like you.
2: But that's you see that's what the communists people older listeners may remember that Eastern Germany, Soviet Union, they loved rowing and there was something the communists liked it because actually it's the product of a system. It's not you're not Messi is just an individually brilliant human being. You put him on a pitch and it's just mm. magic happens. That's not very convenient for communists, because they they want to believe that the state, that society can create this kind of brilliance. So they loved it, they just got really tall people like me and stuck them all on a boat and thrashed them hard enough and they won gold medals. And they're like, you see, this is this brilliant thing. So it's true, we don't have to be that good at sport.
1: Are you a tennis player? Are you good hand-eye coordination?
2: I was reasonably good at rugby as well, because again, you don't have to be very good. I, I, you just, yeah. I didn't have to like, I was the old school rugby where big people just had these sort of fights, basically in the middle of it, yeah, so I was right. all right at that bit. But no, I'm not, luckily I've married a, a woman who's very, very good at uh, hand-eye stuff, and so my kids are quite good at things oh, yeah. like that, which is nice for me to watch. Yeah.
1: Unfortunately, my son appears to have inherited my gifts. But well, he's
2: a Ber- swimming champion.
1: Well, I mean, Nothing to yes, be I mean, there. you know, I was I was exceptional up to the age of thirteen.
2: What that, happened in that 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 key? Well, the key <laughs> 13 to 14 puberty, well, drink drugs, th- and rock yeah. and roll. Well, was is that, that, that
1: thing of like. You can go and have fun, ah, or you yes. can spend two hours in a pool every morning and yeah, two hours yeah. in a pool every evening and f- smell of chlorine.
2: You were the Harry Enfield teenager, you just flipped. Yeah, just yeah. flipped. It, oh, was, it, no. was, it
1: was ugly for everyone involved.
2: Well, we, swimming is, we've underperformed swimming here, traditionally at the Olympics, so that I know, could be why. I
1: know, it could have been, been so great, but it wasn't. The other similarity that we have is Fathers of Note. Oh, yeah. And in fact, our fathers worked together. I know. Together. Actually,
2: that's so fun. They interviewed each other, and for oh, well, yours, interviewed mine. So that this yeah. is a weird generational thing. I know so it's coming
1: all the yeah. way round again. But your father's gift, or what he was known for early on, was was as a statistician. Yeah. We, Did I say that right? A yes. statistician. Yes. And and he used to do Eurovision with Dad.
2: Yes, that's right. Yeah. And the weird thing about my dad is he was, <laughs> everyone in the world now does YouTube explainers with facts and figures, mm. and you know. That kind he of really pioneered that. He was the original guy. He, 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 he used to go, even back in the day, when you almost had to write stuff with a chalk and a, a pen, you know, in the sort of 70s and stuff. So, and, and as soon as computers came out, he went, these are going to be extraordinary tools to visualise information. He had that kind of brain. He, got, he, he didn't understand what was going on behind the screen, but he'd work with the guys. And so you're right, he was ahead of his time, time in many ways. And, and lots of the things he helped work with and pioneer, working with other people, obviously, are still being used today. But the, that, that idea of hey, what's going on in Gaza or in um, Ukraine, let's have the big map and move things around on it. That was really that's been his passion. But he
1: put energy into it and interest into it that that wouldn't have otherwise been there without his skill sets.
2: Yeah, he's. A, I learned a lot. I've learned so much, from obviously. But he's a, he's really good at taking. A, difficult subject and make it understandable he, he loves see, he loves the written word as well and obviously you but you've sort of
1: followed a similarish path and yeah. it I mean was it predestined really I mean did you have a choice coming uh, from oh, is, yeah. is your fam? do your family sit around when you were growing up did you sit around a table just throwing facts and figures at each oh, yeah. other
2: yeah I mean our family are obsessed with history in fact except me and dad are by far the least Impressive historians in our family. <laughs> My auntie's a professor at Oxford. My cousin by marriage is Avi Shlaim, the famous Israeli historian. Like, I mean, no, it's bonkers. Like, it's crazy. And mum and dad, both journalists, they were interested in practical history. So they're like, right, Thatcher, Argentina invading the Falklands, Kuwait. You know, things in the nineties that I still remember, eighties and nineties. They were interested in history because they wanted to know why those things were happening. So it was like, you know, as we see today in the Middle East, we're still seeing the Middle East. You know, what is going on? Why? What is happening mm-hmm. with the West Bank? And and so for them to do their job properly as journalists, they had to go and read that i probably took it one step further i'm a bit more like some of the other members i got interested in like random abstract history mm-hmm. like i just oh i'm so obsessed with 19th century methodism you know like that sort of weird geeky history but deep down i think that their, their journalistic fascination with why the world is the way it is really really started me off you've done far more impressive things in loads of other fields but and you probably don't get people talking to you about your dad but everyone a lot of people think oh that kid's just there because his dad and and I have to say, I have great sympathy with that critique. Mm. Like, I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't been born where I was. No. Weirdly, when the BBC rang up and said, Do you want to make a show off the back of one of the rowing boat races? Dad actually said no. So, in terms of the very short term, ways that I got into presenting, it wasn't my dad. But clearly, long-term, of course it wasn't. It was my mum and my grandma who taught me a great love of history as well, my grandpa. I come from a family where all we did was talk about history, try and convince each other of fascinating... We'd tell a lot of stories. I'm here thanks to them.
1: It happened pretty much immediately. Like, you left university and yeah. then straight away had your own well, was history a, it was
2: show. It yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it was but, crazy. Do you, but do
1: you think that's because you brought something different to history and the fact that you were young... You didn't appear to be wearing any tweed. That's right. And uh, didn't have a beard. And were were arguably handsome. No, well.
2: I, th- I think... Well, I think it was luck and timing and, as ever, like everything in this world is totally luck and timing. Uh, we interesting. So the BBC said, do you want to make the show? Dad said no. And I was kind of 19 and thought that thing happened all the time. I'm not sure, the BBC came. Then, then I finished undergrad. I was about to look at postgraduate stuff. And the BBC, the same guy in the BBC said, it's the 60th anniversary of the Battle of Alamein coming up. Dad, Dad's not a dissimilar age to Montgomery at the battle. Dan's sort of the age that they would have been on the front line. We could tell this history from these kind of two stars. Dan's on the front line. Peter's doing that kind of strategy and, and the top level stuff. And that seemed quite an attractive, interesting idea. And I went to Egypt... And just had the time of my life. You know, I'm so privileged. I we were driving around minefields with Bedouin guides, trying to find rusting remnants of the battle fought sixty years before. Interviewing veterans of the battle, um, and and having fun and exciting times in Egypt. You know, adventures. I thought this is what I want to do for the rest of my bloody life. So I, from that moment, just just I, I just knew that I had to just run with that. <laughs>
1: We've got a new book out, which is yeah. book number what
2: now is well, it? Well, yeah, this is a this was a team effort by violent history, but this is yeah, it's probably the sort of fourth or fifth book of my name I think. But
1: but you are creative director am, of yes, history yes, yeah, exactly,
2: Hit. yeah. So I started. My whole my entire career has basically been an attempt to regain the, the high of that first job. Or, you know that's what they that's what addicts always say. Worryingly, I just wanted to be able to drive around those deserts and look at old rusting machinery from the Second World War. And so initially, that was very privileged to work at the BBC, and then other things, just go other channels around the world. And then I thought the internet's happening, man. I can think I can try and do this myself. And that's why I've now got grey hair. But mm. but it was it, it was an exhausting. Well, there but there might be age as well. Yeah, but it was age and it was a age and stress all that. But. <laughs> The uh, I just was I thought there was an opportunity, and now you know lots of people are doing it, where you, where a group of subscribers, you, know, you create a community, and subscribers can sort of support you to do these things, uh, and not just rely on on kind of the big broadcasters sweeping in like Netflix or the BBC, going yeah, look and look for this shipwreck if you like.
1: But I think what's extraordinary about history here is. How you've created such a depth of information, and then the information is sort of given by a whole range of different and interesting people. I mean, we were talking before about your new Napoleon video. I mean, tell us, tell us who's doing that?
2: So we got Ridley Scott agreed to sit down with us for an hour and talk about the poem, which was really nice because he is. It was. It was. Well, it was. It was good, and and actually, it was such a nice personal thing for me because after years of trying to convince people that there is room out in the in the global media space for a kind of community of history geeks across YouTube, Instagram, Podcast, TV, all sorts of things. Eventually, getting to that point, and then seeing people like Ridley Scott and his team go, yeah, actually, that's kind of an audience we're quite interested in, and we might want to go and chat to. And we didn't just get kind of ten minutes with him, and he was happy to have kind of deep dive and talk about, mm. you know, history and why history is such a great subject for the big screen, how he shoots history, how he imagines history, why he doesn't want to listen to historians because they're like, I don't trust them. Right? If, if the, sto- you know, so it was a really great opportunity.
1: I love history. I mean, I really do love history. It's one of the few O-levels I actually got. What I love about this is, this history hit miscellany, is it's how I like to consume history. Because I think I at best have what would be described as a butterfly mind. I hope you wouldn't be insulted by me describing it. It's the perfect bog book.
2: That's, that's what it's for. You know, it's for Definitely. passing time in the loo, passing time in the effectively. Loo. List, lots of good lists in there.
1: <laughs> You've got a number of food okay, ones right, through here, here which I've enjoyed. So the oldest restaurant in the world is supposed to be Casa Botin in Madrid and, in Spain. Yeah. In this, you, you touch on the fact that really, if it wasn't for Christopher Columbus, world book. cuisine would be completely different.
2: It is one of the most mind-blowing facts in human history, like, that like the Colombian the, food exchange.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is extraordinary. I mean, you, you touch on it in here, but it is, it's is—it's one of those things that fascinates me. It's like, you know, Asia wouldn't have spice. It no. wouldn't have had chilli. No, no
2: chilli, <laughs> no tomatoes in Italy and yeah, Spain. Yeah. We just think they're the most ob- axiomatically yeah. Spanish thing. Because
1: and, 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 we think about Walter Raleigh, and it's its a potato, madam. Yes. You know, uh, mom. But it, we all laugh at that. We all laugh at that. But it was it was Columbus.
2: Transformative. So no Roman emperor, Genghis Khan, no European, Asian or African mm. ever had chocolate, tomatoes, mm. chilies, turkey. Like, it's incredible. And then by the flip side, there's no American had ever tasted, you know, pig, cow no. or sheep. No. No. It's, cr- it's just... It's and, and, it, and
1: if it wasn't for the Native American Indians, corn wouldn't exist and the other thing that corn or a derivative of it is in almost every single modern thing that we touch it's It's used in every single thing so if it wasn't for the native american indians almost nothing we see touch i mean i'm sure scientists would have found another way of producing it it's all rooted in that
2: can you imagine the the excitement of the time of being in the 16th century and be like there you go mate just transformative food
1: Prior to coming on, as all the guests do, you answered a short questionnaire on a sort of your own food history, yes. should we say. And the one that really stuck out for me early on was this one.
2: Oh, my goodness, man. We have
1: now in front of us some baked beans on toast. You
2: bring me to Mayfair, to this <laughs> posh restaurant. It's absolutely glorious. People listening, it's like luxury velvet furnishing. I was expecting, and you've just taken the. Lid off and there's a piece of white bread with some baked beans on it. I can't bear it. Well, I hate baked beans.
1: But, but it, is, it is the staple of everything. I mean, who doesn't like baked beans on toast? Turns out Dan Snap.
2: Yeah, it's a weird fact. I don't even know what. I, they are the devil's work. They're, they're the, 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 the texture is disgusting. It's like a little sponge in your mouth. But I mean, uh,
1: would, would you then not eat a butter bean, for example?
2: Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of butter beans.
1: A flagellate? A chickpea?
2: Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of a chickpea, but I'll eat them. But for yeah. some reason, I'm a bit but, <laughs> but, but baked beans, maybe I associate it with, like, reigning suburban childhood in the 80s. I, there's something deep... Maybe it's psychological. I, I can't... It's just. It's not good.
1: What about in a... Could you hide them in a baked potato?
2: I've tried that. I mean, that's obviously... With enough butter in a baked potato, but you can... Well, enough of,
1: butter on anything. <laughs>
2: You can smuggle them in that way if you want.
1: <laughs> so there's no way oh, you're going to eat that. Well, I'll try you? it for
2: you. I'm sure this is a very gone. Nice...
1: I, I, I want because you, you've made such a thing about how awful. I think you described them as tasting like carpet or having they, the same that, texture as carpet. Yeah,
2: they do, and I defy anyone to disagree with me about that. They, they taste like an old shag carpet.
1: <laughs> Here we go. Now this is this is very brave of you because this is a this is a horrible thing.
2: For you, I I mean,
1: I really like them. I like, I like, you know. Sometimes baked beans just hit the spot. Do
2: they though?
1: Well, it's like I fall into a funny category now. Marmite.
2: Oh.
1: So you love it, of course I do. Right. So, marmite, you either love it or hate it.
2: Mm. I don't mind it. (laughs) (laughs) It's just they are so disgusting. (laughs) And actually, having not eaten them for a while, they're very sweet
1: as well. Yeah, they've got a lot of sugar I mean, in they're them. they're
2: certainly bad for you, though.
1: Yeah, things. yeah. No. Well, I mean, they're not like anything. In moderation, it's fine. Sure, yeah. It's fine. It's that whole thing of eating a balanced diet. Yeah. Because we live in a convenience world now, and in many cases, we, we don't raise people to cook. I mean, your mother, yeah, good cook.
2: Oh, yeah. listening to this mum she we did not have a big cooking culture in our family no she made absolutely lovely sunday roast every week and it was great crumble at the end lovely lovely but it, yeah it was not it's we're not people that like go to italy on holiday and do like cooking courses and get involved and stuff she was very busy she was working working mum and, and lots going on so yeah i think it was uh it's not definitely part of the culture of my family but it's interesting to see my sister's married a real foodie and he is an amazing cook and it's interesting to see that. It's nice to see that in her family there's now a culture of, you know, their, and their kids are growing up with a much better culture of cooking.
1: And your good lady wife?
2: Me, well, my wife's not, not unlike my mum in that respect. No, that's a terrible thing to say. But she, so she's very, she's kind of very, very busy with work as well. And so she is not someone who, and, and the two of us to relax, we like to go and sit with a glass of wine and go outside. We're not like, oh, let's just, the two of us just work on something in the kitchen together. It's just, unfortunately, it's not the way that we... No, don't don't I get me wrong, my
1: wife and I can't cook together. Okay. No, because I mean, mainly because I'm a control freak. Right. And sounds she hates cool. <laughs> me telling her how to do anything.
2: But it sounds like a very yeah. relaxing time.
1: So we both can cook, but it's definitely a yeah. separate endeavour. Following the rules that if you cook, you don't have to clean up. Oh, yeah. I'm very keen to cook straight away because I, I don't like washing up. up.
2: I actually like washing up. I used to work as a washer-upper when I was 18. So I'm, I feel that. As for, also, as a man, there's, like, there's a permission when you wash up. Just to be on your own for a bit, isn't there? Mm. You don't have to do other things. Was it?
1: <laughs> there's that that Buddhist monk who's one of his quotes, isn't it? That if you are washing up, just make sure you know you're washing up.
2: Yeah, it's that's, well, be present. That's I, that yeah. I've, I've inadvertently been following that teaching, <laughs> but that's right. In you the can same escape way, from everyone as a, well. In the same way, there's a very joyful moment. You'll know this, as a Dad, where you load the car for the family road trip it's just everyone's shouting at each other, it's a complete nightmare and people poo their nappies and everything, and then you get everyone in the car,
1: and that's just and the you, adults you
2: sh- <laughs> and then you shut the last door of the car and then you walk around the bonnet <laughs> into the driver's seat, and that is a very yeah. peaceful, That's so the best part of the journey it's the best part of the journey, and there's nothing else you could be doing, no one's going to be like, and I find that about washing up, I'm in a place, I'm helping I'm doing more than helping, I'm helping to keep I'm really leading on keeping this family and this house tidy and clean and you're
1: so, being the dustband the dustband. we have got to that point in the proceedings where. Ooh. I will ask you to put upon the blindfold.
2: This is very posh, this blindfold as well, just so you'll know at home. There's little cavities for the eyes. It doesn't press in on you.
1: Oh, Ooh, no. know. Well, it, well, it's well, it's important that you see nothing. Oh, no,
2: I'm, I can see nothing here.
1: Good, I'm going to
2: buy these because they sleep at night.
1: Wow. And for other things. We have our spoons here. I'm going All to right. feed you. Ooh. So it's a, it's a bit like here comes the train. Open wide. Ah. Here it comes. Mm. Now, mm. tell me what textures, mm. flavors, That you are experiencing now? Is it spicy? Is it sweet? Is it Um, salty? It's it's a
2: lovely. I'm going to be, I'm basically pausing because if it's a huge baked bean, I'm going to be really embarrassed. (laughs) I think it's meat.
1: Hmm.
2: And there's a lovely sort of potato puree and a lovely gravy on it.
1: Take the blindfold off.
2: I mean, that is absolutely delicious. It's like a lovely, it's like a fancy roast dinner, Hmm. like one you get.
1: Well, the whole principle of doing this, and the reason we started this in the first place, was my belief is outside of a religious belief or a medical condition or that sort of thing, there's no such thing as a bad ingredient. Right? You've just had it cooked badly for you, and that's why you don't enjoy it. If I told you that was a lamb sweetbread, which you said you hate, I would
2: oh, that's you very interesting. It. Yeah, no, that's very embarrassing. <laughs> that, I could, I could taste the lamb, but how interesting it was sweetbread? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I could tell the texture wasn't like a cut of meat that I'd had before. So that is, yeah.
1: I mean, we did slightly cheat and put one of your favourite ingredients with it, which was a sweet potato. Yeah,
2: absolutely heavenly. Yeah, I couldn't tell it was a sweet potato actually, but it was delicious. Yeah.
1: yeah. Have we changed your opinion yes, about sweetbreads?
2: Yes, 100 success. Sign me up.
1: There I'm, we go. I'm ready
2: for the sweetbreads, yeah. Right.
1: Back on with the blindfold again for the sweet spoon bread. number two. Here it comes. Hey. Open wide. Now, what are we getting mm. this time?
2: Oh, my goodness. Well, that is crumble. I'm getting some lovely cubes of, of fruit. And a little little, delicious little bit of um, crumble on the top. Very sweet with lovely fruity sauce.
1: Well, you can take the blindfold off because we gave you your guilty pleasure. Oh. Yes. which was apple crumble yeah. and ice Heaven. cream. Heaven. Why is that your go-to rather than well, chocolate that, or, or something like that? I don't
2: know. It's pure Proustian memories of childhood. Uh, as I said, my mum, would we didn't really eat together. Mum and Dad worked all week, but we'd have a really lovely Sunday and we'd go and get dragged around a National Trust property in the rain and then we'd drive back in our sort of knackered old Citroen and stinking of the t- jerry can of petrol that my dad kept in the back and we'd listen to the kids with the doze in the back all lying on top of each other, probably before seatbelts. And mum and dad'd be listening to kind of classical music in the front. We'd be sitting in these long traffic jams on winter's evenings. We'd go home, we'd have roast roast dinner, and then we'd have a delicious crumble. So it's purely memories of a happy childhood.
1: That's your history, which yeah. is lovely. And I think the wonderful thing about food is is it can trigger that oh. history. It's sort of it it's similar in a sense to you being in the desert, uncovering a rusty piece of metal and knowing exactly what it is, and you in your head, because of the knowledge that you have, being transported back to that historical moment. The same thing with food, the once it hits your palate, and if you're blindfolded as well, it's sort of, all of a sudden, this whole sort of world opens up yeah. of memories, which are obviously pleasurable, apart from the smell of petrol.
2: Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> but, but it's, you're totally right, and- the, and the, and the joy of food it, it brings back those memories. Uh, food is a wonderful thing, right? Because a it sustains us, keeps us alive.
0: Mm.
2: B it's the most. It is the greatest vehicle for social socializing and and chatting. And when you when you've got friends around the table with food and drinks on it, you actually don't need anything else in the world. And, that, no. and that's just it's a wonderful thing.
1: Food is everything. Yeah. Now, each week, our previous guest oh. asks our current guest, a question. So I have a question for you from none other than the Hairy Bikers. I like it. here we go. I've always wondered whether it's an urban myth or not, that at the time of the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon was meant to be devastated with his haemorrhoids, his piles, and as a due result of his piles, he made some terrible military decisions, which resulted in the Duke of Wellington
2: winning. So basically, Dan, if it wasn't for Napoleon's piles, would we be speaking French now? Oh. Well, it is definitely true that Napoleon was a shadow as for self in 1815. He, he was he was ill. He probably had the cancer. He probably had the intestinal problems, some problems that would end up killing him. He, we think he'd have really bad pals, so he couldn't sit on a horse. So he was less active than he was at the Battle House, let's say, 10 years before. I think he would have been hard-pressed to win the Battle of Waterloo, even if he hadn't had pals, but it did not make it easy for him at all. He <laughs> had a big old headwind, if that's the right expression. <laughs> but, so it's that is a it's half true, yeah.
1: Well, thank goodness for piles. Big thank you to you for being a historic guest. And Dan's book, History Hit Miscellany, is out now. That is Spooning over for this week. My thanks to Jamie Shears and the team here at Mount Street Restaurant for the food. It's been brilliant as ever. I think you'd agree, Dan. Oh, delicious. Now, if you like what we're doing here with Spooning, you can follow us at spooning with Mark Wogan across all your social media channels and don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's all for this week. Stay beautiful people.